Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, and 11b. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My purpose or counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure or purpose. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned or purposed, and I will do it. Genesis 1, 26-28 Then God said, Let us make man in our image, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Psalm 110, 1-7 The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Isaiah 2, 2-5 Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say let us come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Isaiah 9, 1-7 For to us a child will be, will be, for to us a child will be, is born. To us a son, or will be, is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be increase of no end to, the, to his government and of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish or do this. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the gentle or the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Luke twenty two twenty four through 27 And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves him? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. John 13, 1-17 You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you, Nathan. So as you know, I always uh, limit myself to what, what I can fit on the front and back of one page. So you'll notice there are several places where it says, see this scripture or see that scripture. And uh, I would really encourage you to consider reading those to develop this theme in your mind and your heart. Um, again, the dominion mandate. So uh, let's flip over the page and get into uh, the fact that the, the dominion mandate is a major theme of the whole Bible, okay? God uh, created the world in order to have a people for his own possession that he might rule in them and then rule in them and rule the world from them, okay? However, as we're going to see today, God's idea of rulership is very contrary to man's fallen nature and to the way, the way man looks at rulership. So we'll get into that as we go. So the first thing I want to talk about is the, I'm going to, actually you have A, B, C, and D on your outline, but I'm going to give you A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, I forgot one point when I was in my study, so you can write it in somewhere when we get to it. But uh, point A remains the same, the dominion mandate, uh, redeemed and restored. In other words, God always had a purpose from, from the beginning. And that purpose is expressed in what is called the dominion covenant or the dominion mandate scriptures that Nathan read in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. God said that he wanted man to rule over all the creeps that creep on the earth. Uh, God, God's intention is to uh, subdue the creeps and, uh, and uh, to do it through uh, first subduing us as creeps and taking the creepiness out of us. So a uh, little humor for your Sunday morning. Um, remember Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, which we use that scripture uh, among as, as part of a whole page of scriptures when we talked about the eternal decree. God is outside and above time. He foreknows all things. He's predestined all things. If you're worshiping a God that doesn't foreknow all things, he would be less than God. He wouldn't be worthy of our worship. And so he declares the end from the beginning, and his purpose is immutable. It cannot be thwarted. God has would-be enemies they, in, in Satan and his minions, his fallen angels and demons, in the world system, and in our own sin nature. God has many would-be enemies, but even his would-be enemies in the, in the end serve his purpose. The reason there are demon spirits is you need them. You need them as part of God's ultimate sanctification purpose for your life. You need to trample on serpents and scorpions and understand that through the power of Christ, nothing of the enemy shall harm you. You need to overcome their the lies, the lying emotions, lying thoughts, fears, doubts, unbeliefs, and so forth that they bring. So God's purpose, God declares the end from the beginning. Um, I kind of made a composite of the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible. And I also compared the New King James on each of them 
and for at least for these particular scriptures, there wasn't a single word uh, that that the New King James would have done differently than than at least either the ESV or the NASB in each case. So you really have kind of three translations welded together here. Um, so again, God declares the end from the beginning, and His purpose is simply this: to uh, to create a, a nation of people or a group of people born of one royal head who was originally supposed to be Adam and, and Adam and Eve, and, uh, and, and through them to subdue the earth, rule it, as he declares subduing the earth and rule it. That is to manifest his presence, show forth his glory, to bring the perfect tabernacle of heaven into the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is, is connected to the theme of sanctuary or temple or tabernacle, in the Bible, and God wanted to take the perfectness of his realm and his dominion and his kingdom in heaven, filled with his spirit and filled with his glory, and make that manifest on the earth. And he tells us in the Lord's Prayer model, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that that's still his purpose. It's just that he uh, is doing that through uh, the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, now, uh, in terms of restoring uh, and redeeming the d dominion mandate, let's read a couple other scriptures. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, he says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I brought you to myself. I bore you on eagles' wings. I had to cut some out to make it fit. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. The, the Psalms everywhere else declare the cattle on a thousand hills are his. All the earth is his. He owns the earth. When man fell, a usurper came in, and uh, the small g God of this world began to, to uh, undercut and undermine God's dominion. But God allowed that for his ultimate eternal decree purposes. Okay, so uh, man began to build the kingdom of man, which had some of its biggest manifestations in the Tower of Babel and in the nation of Egypt and in the nation of uh, Babylon and the Medes and the Persians and, and eventually the Greeks and then eventually the Romans, as Daniel brings out, as we, as we brought out last week when we looked at two people groups. But God is always, his goal was to take the fall of Adam and Eve and to redeem that and to continue his purpose through a new creation and a new heavens and a new earth, and he is making all things new. He is not making all new things. The popular views of eschatology today will require Jesus to come back to rescue us from Satan and the, the church is getting smaller and smaller and there, there will be no end to the increase of Satan's dominion and of, and of his chaos. Uh, but that's not, what, that's not what we read at Advent, do we? The government will be upon his shoulders and there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. What's interesting, if you just look at the demographics of it and just look at it that shallow, um, on the first Easter Sunday, there were approximately 120 followers of Christ. At least there are that many uh, in the upper room 40 days late, 50 days later. Um, they were afraid, 
Jesus had to tell them not to run from Jerusalem, but to wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 people in that upper room, according to Acts 1, 14 and 15. By the second Lord's Day, Easter Sunday, by the second uh, Sunday, uh, celebrating the resurrection of Christ a year, a year later, there were at least 5,000 or more believers. 3,000 came to Christ on the day of Pentecost alone. And there have actually been more believers and followers of Christ every Easter since then. And the numbers, uh, the growth in just the last 110 10 years, while the church has been prophesying that it's going to get smaller, that will Jesus find faith in the earth, and we need to run NEM, NEM, it's a twister, and it's, you know, all this kind of negative mentality uh, that, that we're going to be defeated and the Antichrist is going to be glorified and God's going to have to rapture us out of here to save us uh, from any trials or tribulations we might go through or what all this negativity that Spurgeon uh, said predicted was going to become very popular when the idea first started to hit the church in the 1890s. Spurgeon predicted that that would become very popular because it requires no faith, it requires no commitment, it requires no community, it requires no covenant, it requires no character, and it requires no integrity. It just, you just, when, when things get worse and worse, you just go, see, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. <laughs> and you get your newspaper out, you know, school shooting, see, the, 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 you know, every, everything's broken, see, this is good. No, it's not. So um, just in the last 110 years, the outpouring of God's spirit is, is, is today incredible. Tens of thousands of people are coming to Christ on this planet every day. For the first time about 15 years ago, so most demographers say around 2002, uh, Christianity became the largest faith in the, in the earth surpassing Islam, is, and which is now number two and, and shrinking while, it, while Christianity is growing. And um, I, I shouldn't say that Islam is shrinking. They're both growing. But Christianity is growing faster. So let's read a couple of scriptures. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. You have seen what I've done to the Egyptians, how I bore you, brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, you might say, this is Old Testament. Well, we're going to help you with that when we get to uh, chapter, um, let's see what... Chapter 12, current concepts that hinder the kingdom of God. And you'll, and uh, we'll hopefully by that time, we'll have given you your Old Testament back uh, so that you'll love your Old Testament, read the Old Testament, uh, spend hours in the Old Testament enjoying it uh, because it's very much for today. And uh, because all covenants that God makes are, can never, you cannot alter them or change them or add or subtract from them, as Paul tells us in Galatians. So God has to fulfill them in order to, uh, to give us more. The new covenant is indeed better than the old covenant, but the new covenant fulfills every part of the old covenant. And it doesn't abrogate it or negate it. Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law, Matthew 5, 14, but I came to enforce it. I came to give you the power to do it. I came to write it on your hearts and your mind. 
The reason getting baptized in the Spirit is so important is because Pentecost was on the Feast of, of Pentecost, on, which celebrates the giving of the law. And it's all, the ultimate writing of the law of God on your heart, soul, and mind. That's what, who the Holy Spirit is, and that's what he does. He empowers you to love the Lord and to love his law and to love his word and to do it. Not because you have to, you try to do it out of performance, which no one was ever justified by. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No one in the Old Testament was saved by works. Abraham was saved by faith, as both Jesus in John chapter 8 and, and uh, uh, Paul in Romans 4 go to a great deal of effort to prove to us. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The great saints of the Old Testament were saved by the same kind of faith we're saved, faith ultimately in the character of God, in the integrity of his word, and that he will indeed fulfill it. And they look to the future of the atonement while we look to the past accomplished atonement, but they were saved the same way as we are. So um, now Peter brings this out when he quotes Exodus 19, 5 and 6 in 1 Peter 2, 9. Uh, one of the things I like about the New American Standard is it uses small caps whenever it's quoting from the Old Testament, whereas ESV uses like italics and New King James uses italics, and it's, it's easier to miss, I think, sometimes in italics. Small caps stand out a little better. But in any case, uh, you are a chosen race. Where's that come from? It comes from the scripture right above it. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm going to definitely not eat chili again at 6 a.m. Uh, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So uh, when Jesus says, I'll build my church, the Greek word ekklesia is the same word the Septuagint uses for Moses's congregation. And so what he's saying is, uh, I, I am going to build a new covenant people in the earth, a new people that fulfill Exodus 19, 5 and 6, a new royal priesthood, a new chosen race, a new uh, holy nation, a new people for God's own possession, a new special treasure. Uh, a new group of people that indeed obey my voice, called the body of Christ. Or the church. At least somebody likes that point. Thank you, Samuel. Uh, so, uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why a lot of people don't fly, because Jesus only promised to be with us. Lo, no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> bad joke. Uh, so Genesis 28, 18 through, or I'm sorry, Matthew 28, 18 through 28, is just a restatement, a reconfiguration of, Gen of the dominion mandate. Because what is Jesus saying? He, first of all, he's saying uh, God had all authority in heaven and earth, and he delegated that to his vice regent, Adam, and his wife, Eve, 
and to rule under God on his behalf, and they fell. Jesus has all authority in, under God. God the Father has given him all authority in heaven and earth, and so he is birthing uh, those who, his disciples have to be reborn in him to be his follower. You, the, the, the major uh, introductory step into the kingdom of God is to have that, that old dead spirit that you re- inherited from Adam regenerated by the Holy Spirit in the new birth. And then empowered by the Holy Spirit in the baptism in the spirit. And, uh, and as you learn how to yield to the Holy Spirit and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and walk above your, the, putting, putting to death this, the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the flesh is death. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The deeds of the flesh are manifest or obvious, immorality, uh, sensuality, uh, bickering, hostility, sorcery, etc. Um, as as uh, you make a disciple and a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and living a life of a disciple, a follower of Christ in the community of the redeemed, you teach them, as Adam was to do, everything that it means to love God, know God, walk with God, and and to fulfill the dominion mandate. It's the same. It's the same commission. The great commission and the the dominion mandate are one and the same. Teach them to observe all that I, modern translation, suggest to to you, but if it's not too inconvenient. No, that wasn't God's intention. That's what we have today, but the, he, he actually wanted the, them to teach them to observe all that he commanded them to do, to fulfill all of God's heart, all of God's lay. Paul brings out in Romans that, the, that in the law of God is the embodiment of the truth. And it was never the intention of God that people out of their own initiative and out of their own self-righteousness and out of their own works would be able to fulfill the law. The law was just given to make sin more obvious, because to be our tutor to lead us to Christ, and so that sin might become utterly sinful, because sin was in the earth from Adam, long be, and the law came at the time of Moses. But the law was is eternal. It was always God's law, but it hadn't been given to the to to God's covenant people, and it needed. We need it. Because otherwise, our sin is completely deceitful. One of the reasons we are not that we're supposed to live in community and not forsake the assembling together is lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has this way of heart, you know, heart hiding itself. I have. It is one of the most amazing things that I have experienced. Is I've been privileged by the grace of God over the years to to. Uh, to lead in, a, in an old-fashioned catechal way, lead a number of people from unbelief to Christ over a season of time. And the thing that's, mo- that's most fascinating to me still, and you know, the Bible talks about the mystery of godliness and the mystery of lawlessness. And the thing that's the greatest mystery to me still is the people who have the most sinfulness 
always see it the less, the least. It's a crazy thing. Like people who see themselves as basically pretty good usually have the least basis for that. That's, that's amazing. And that's rampant in the church today. Lots and lots of Christians think that they needed Jesus to come into their life. They were basically a pretty good person, and they just needed a little bit of help. That's how we pray the sinner's prayer, right? I just needed a little churching up. I wasn't blind, wretched, naked, uh, lost, rebellious, and so forth. And until you see the depth of your sin, you can see very little the greatness of his grace. It's as simple as that. So he's, the cultural mandate remains the same. He's just redeeming it so that we can be restored to do it. To the degree that you see your sin and that you're broken and humbled and, and stop, cease your own efforts. That's why one of the foundations of the faith listed in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 is repentance from dead works. Our churches are filled with people who, who basically have this idea that I'm not that miserable. I'm not that lost. I'm not that rebellious. I'm not that sinful. I'm better than the woman caught in adultery or something like this. Or they have all sorts of people in their mind and heart that they would consider themselves more righteous than. And that's why they don't like to, to minister to people who are drunkards and alcoholics and prostitutes and homosexuals and have bed bugs and, and lice and, and so forth because you don't think you have that. When, when you begin to see you as God sees you, you will start to be able to fulfill the dominion mandate because you'll, you'll trust only in him. And you'll see yourself as no more righteous than anyone else you're ministering to. But you've first got to encounter the depth of your pride and the depth of your rebellion and the depth of your self-righteousness. And I find that people who grow up in church are the hardest people to reach with the true gospel, which is all we're talking about here, the gospel of the kingdom of God. So that... Jesus came to restore the dominion mandate. Now, God gave the dominion mandate to Adam. He again gave it to Noah, as we're going to see when we survey the whole Old Testament. He gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, to David. But every person until Christ failed, and every people group until Christ failed, and he alone always did that which was pleasing to his father. And he alone was obedient even unto the point of death. And you can't exercise dominion until you let him have dominion over you. The reason we lack so much power is because we still have so much of self. Now, this won't sell much, but... If you can get a hold of it, it it'll save you, uh, even though it won't ever be popular. Let's look at B, the dominion mandate and the eternal decree. We've touched on this already. 
But I, I just uh, want to read this statement. This, this is kind of preaching at my typewriter. You might, <laughs> I was at preaching by my keyboard in the middle of the night last night. Probably typed this up around 3 in the morning. The Dominion mandate has been and always will be God's purpose for his redeemed covenant people. God is telling you, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Be fruitful, multiply, rule the earth. And again, to the degree you let the reign of God come into you, to that degree you can begin to extend it into your family, into uh, your courting, into your marriage, into your making disciples, uh, into your ministry, etc. That's why, uh, you know, um, one of the things that we look for as we raise up leadership is people who can't take direction from leadership in the church are, are of no value to, in the ultimate things of God. That's a point Watchman Nee really hammers home in his book, Spiritual Authority. You can actually be very scripturally knowledgeable, very filled with the Holy Spirit, and very much doing your own thing. The reason God put disciples in the church and elders and, and uses words like let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, which actually means double pay. That'll be the day if we ever get to that. But uh, uh, the re especially those who work hard at the preaching and teaching. Um, you know, we have guys that work hard at the preaching and teaching, and we give them a few books for their birthday. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, we don't have the budget to actually have paid staff. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the reason God has all these things is because that's where the cross will will meet your will that's where you'll experience gethsemane that's where the rubber hits the road and uh the dominion mandate has always been and always will be god's purpose for his redeemed covenant people we are to mediate the presence of god proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of light deliver the captives cultivate disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, spread and restore God's reign into every sphere of human endeavor, including all seven of the inevitable institutions of government. Hopefully you know what those are by now. You should have those memorized. You can't really serve God if you don't have stuff like that memorized, by the way. I'm always amazed at how many of these things that we've taught over and over and over again that I'll ask people and they'll go, they can't rattle them off. You should be able to rattle them off in order. Why? Because you don't know how to direct your ministry and your priorities if they're not in your mind and heart. When you're praying about your priorities, God has seven institutions that he's created, and they all fell with Adam, and he's redeeming them all in Christ, and they are first and foremost the self-government of the Christian man or woman. You were held captive, Paul says, by Satan to do his will until he called you to be born again into the kingdom of his beloved son. Self-government begins with reconciliation to God, with regeneration, with conversion, with the new birth, with becoming a Christian. And it grows as you mature in sanctification and discipleship and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The family is the second institution. The church is the third institution. Educational systems are the fourth institution. We're not at these public schools to try to change them. They're they're systemically too lost to do so. We're, we're there to come alongside, serve, proclaim the gospel, 
lead pe- lead people to Christ, nurture and disciple them into mature Christian adults. We're a long way from restoring uh, those systems, and in the end, public schools aren't going to aren't going to be the restored institution. Vocational systems is is the uh, fifth one. Sixth one is the media and social mores, and lastly is civil governments. And uh, that's that's why it's crazy in our day and age to think that we can just change America by voting for a few politicians that might have a few of the right ideas. That's just nonsense. It's too it it's too pagan of a culture at this point for that. What we need is a much is a massive restoration of biblical Christianity that will restore all seven of those things in that order. So, uh, again, keep sidetracking myself, so I'm trying to read my statement. Including all seven of the inevitable institutions of government, bringing the kingdom of Christ to every tribe, tongue, people group, and culture until all the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. This is uh, the motivation of any Christian disciple. That is, now, you know, it's amazing to me, but when you spend time with God, when you're reading your Bible, when you're praying, one of the th- reasons you're, you're given the mirror of God's word is to be able to see from God's perspective, is that what makes you tick? I'm amazed at how many things Christians are motivated by that are not that. Are you motivated about a nicer TV or, you know, it's just amazing. The number of things that people are motivated about in life that aren't what we just read. But what the call of God, what, 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 when Jesus encountered Paul, I have a little... Uh, game I play when I do, we d- did this at our Thursday night Bible study when, in our survey of the New Testament. We're looking at the nine authors of the New Testament, and we looked at Paul and his conversion, and which there's about five accounts of in the New Testament, starting with Acts 9. And I asked the question, was Paul's uh, encounter with Christ more of a calling or a conversion? And the answer is both. And if you go back and look at Luke 5, and you look at Jesus' encounter with uh, Simon Peter, um, James, John, Andrew, Nathaniel, Philip in, in John's gospel, uh, etc., Ma- um, Levi or Matthew is brought out in Luke 5. If you look at, so the, 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 um, the scriptures give us, uh, in the gospels, we get a close-up of the conversion of seven, seven of the twelve, uh, we get some detail about their calling. And one of the things that you'll see that we don't do today, we pray this sinner's prayer idea, but to be called and to be converted was one in the same in the scriptures. If you're not motivated to change the world for the glory of Jesus Christ, and that really isn't what makes you tick, then you need to cry out to God to convert you. If you can't, when you're spending time with God, say, it, I really want to change this world. Do you cry over human trafficking? 
Do you cry over the slaughter of, of in, in infants? In, in, you know, in, in, in the abortion holocaust world, that's a worldwide holocaust? Do you cry over the lost? Do you cry over the poor? Do you, does that motivate you to study more? Does that motivate you to memorize scriptures? Does that motivate you to fast and come into more of the anointing? Does that motivate you to be, develop better social skills that God could use? Does it motivate you to become more of a team of people that are motivated about that? If not, let's quit meeting on Sundays. Let's just go home and watch football and get conquered by our culture. You know, I, this may sound radical to some, I hope not, but we've got to be delivered from American culture. We need, this is kingdom culture. This is what Christ died to give you. If you're not motivated by compassion for the lost and, and a desire to see God's name glorified in the name of Jesus honored, you know that the name of God is used as a curse word according to Paul because of the sins of God's people. The scriptures bring that out quite clearly in quite a few places. In the book of Acts, it, it, there were times when the God was moving so powerfully, it said no one dared join them. And there was a great fear among all the people. They don't even think we're relevant anymore. I'm looking for a Christianity, and I'm looking for some comrades that will walk in such a way that they'll have to take us seriously so that they'll have to take our Lord seriously. Well, I didn't mean to preach, but I have a license to preach, so it's probably okay. Um, you know, God wants to bring the kingdom culture into every tribe, tongue, people group, into all seven institutions until all the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's our motivation. You really need in your prayer closet to ask God, is that what really makes me tick? Am I really willing to lay down my finances, my my priorities, my everything for this? If not, guess what? The wonderful thing about the, the Christian life is it says to draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. The place to start is to just confess to Jesus, this isn't me. Save me, convert me. I still pray all the time, Lord, conquer me. Sanctify me, make me a man of God. There are too many things that are still of me. So, the dominion mandate and the eternal decree. Um, Numbers 14, 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. If you get a chance, read that in context. Habakkuk, for the earth is filled, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, compare Isaiah 2 quoted above with Micah 4, 1 through 5, because uh, they're basically almost word for word the same. Um, this is the motivation of a Christian disciple. Now, Insert point C that uh, that I, I meant to talk about is notice that this that that um, Psalm one ten that we read says that that he will that we will rule in the midst of our enemies. 
I have there and on the front page, I have confer Psalm 23, which says that he prepares a table before me in the midst of our hands. We are not going to experience a kind of dominion whereby we rule so thoroughly over demonic spirits and and civil governments are changed so much and so forth that we're not constantly harassed, oppressed, even murdered, killed. There's not there's no dominion like that. You know, the, the disciples of the first uh, 313 years of the church or so, well, really 250 or so after the resurrection to the, the decree of Constantine in 313 AD, they reigned in life while they died. And the blood of the martyrs became the scene of the church. What it means to reign in life is to obey God in every way, even unto death. And so the worldly people had to say, look at this. They're, look how much they love this kingdom. Look how much they love this king. They are saying that there's not another king, Jesus, and he's not Caesar, and he's not the governments of this world, and he's not the political power structures of this world. He's this servant leadership who washes the disciples' feet, and they're willing to die for him. Believe me, that's what makes people get serious about looking. You know, the reason the world doesn't take us seriously is, frankly, we're too compromised. They see it. They're not idiots. They see that we can't even have spiritual disciplines consistently or tithe consistently or, or come under spiritual authority consistently or walk in the spirit consistently. Or They see it. And they go, you're fooling yourself. You don't believe it. It's a line from an old rock song. Now, I wish I had time to develop the, some of these points more, but point C is that, that uh, God's dominion is to rule in the midst of our enemies. God will, there, the Bible talks about the nations that serve God versus the nations that don't serve God, and there are times where, where the church, as the church is restored, there have been times in history, and there will be times again, when Christianity permeates whole cultures to the point that it does good for, for in lots of ways and so forth. But there will never be a time where there's no enemies to fight. Now, I wish I had time to uh, discuss John 13, the restoration of servant leadership, but I'll just say this. You, you need to give some thought to that. Notice the context. John 13, 14, 15, and 16 those four chapters are John's account of the Last Supper. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they focus on God, Jesus giving us the communion uh, covenant table and they, uh, Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial of him and, and Judas' betrayal of him and so forth. John uh, focuses on Jesus' last discourse or his last sermon, preparing them for Pentecost. He first washes their feet, demonstrating uh, something that's not new, but the restoration of what God always had in mind. That's why God was so upset with Israel when they wanted a king like the rest of the nations, because he was their king, and he was to raise up prophets and judges uh, in his, charismatically by his spirit throughout Israel, and they wanted to look more like the world. And they wanted a king that would lord it over them. And Samuel warned them that he'll, 
he'll tax you and he'll take your sons and make them serve in the army and so forth. Uh, is that what you really want? You really want to look more like the world? So Jesus wasn't doing something new. He was restoring what was always supposed to be that God's view of leadership is uh, the greatest is the servant of all. And he, you have to have that before you can go on to the next part of the sermon. And the next part of the sermon is all about the power that God was going to release when he released Pentecost on his church. He says more about the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16 than any other place. I wish I could develop that more. But you, woe is us. This is something that we've experienced a lot in Pentecostalism over the last century. And woe is us if, if people get filled with the power that aren't servant leadership, working in plurality of community. That's why we recommend the book, When the Church Was a Family, because he talks not only about how those who stay in one community for, for a lot of years are the ones who grow into maturity, but he also talks about the safeguard over, over having true, you know, you can't have true authority. We, most churches don't have true authority, but if you have true authority, it needs to be plural authority, and it needs to be servant authority. And woe is us if we start casting out demons and praying for people to get baptized in the Spirit and seeing God move in powerful ways if we're not sanctified by servant leadership. Uh, That's all I can time-wise develop. I wish I also could talk more about dominion mandate and the last days and the crown rights of Jesus, but I, I will just say this. The last days are not what you think they are. At Pentecost, Peter said something very clear in Acts 2.17. This is the fulfillment of Joel in the last days I will pour out my spirit. The last days began at Pentecost, and they are, they are mostly about in the New Testament, the last days of God's covenant with Israel and the restoration of his co- covenant with a new people, the church. And... Uh, that's really what Revelation's about, and I wish I could develop that. Read J. Marcellus Kick's book, An Eschatology of Victory, or read David Chilton's book, Paradise Restored, if you want to develop these ideas a little bit more. Uh, in Hebrews 1, verse 2, it says in verse 1 that God spoke to us in various ways, but in these last days has spoken to us through his Son. People say, do you believe we're in the last days? Yes, they started at Pentecost, and just like uh, it was the last days of Germany after the, the uh, Normandy invasion on June 6th uh, and so forth, it's, we're here for a mop-up operation, and the kingdom of God is going to fill the earth until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Amen.